Amen. Well, today, my tentative plan is to come to the end of the book of Titus. We'll have to see as we go along here. But that's the plan. Have you guys enjoyed Titus so far? I hope it's been a good study for you. It's been a small little book, 46 verses. But boy, each week it is loaded with truth that impacts us and stretches our hearts and minds for Christ. And this last passage is no different as it speaks to a topic that is challenging. And that is the topic of how should Christians relate to the world, those outside the church. Remember the last few weeks in chapter 2, we talked about how we should live out sound doctrine within the Christian community, within the church. But now in chapter 3, the focus shifts from Uh, living out sound doctrine within the church community to how do we live out sound doctrine in the world, okay? And I think this is a very helpful passage because what it does, it provides timeless principles for the church regardless of the influence the church has on the society in which it finds itself. Now, this is helpful because in the church will have varying degrees of influence on the society that it finds itself in. For example, in some places, the church has very little influence on the outside society because of its small numbers. You look at North Korea, for example. It has 24 million people, but only 246,000 evangelical Christians. That's about 2.5% of the population. Whereas if you just shift down that island a little bit to South Korea, it has 15 million people and 8.2 million of them are evangelical Christians, or 54.5%. So which of those two countries is going to have a stronger Christian influence? Obviously, the South Korean nation, right? Especially considering how persecuted the church is in North Korea. All right? Now, our passage, though, gives timeless principles that apply to any nation, regardless of whether they have tremendous persecution, whether they have tremendous religious liberty, whether it's uh, a nation that is large, or whether it is a nation that is small, whether it has tremendous church influence, or whether it doesn't. And I think this also speaks to our nation, because our nation has experienced a decreasing Christian influence in the last couple of generations, hasn't it? But this passage speaks to every Christian, whether it's 1950 America or whether it's 2017 America. And that's because God is brilliant. And He knows that His Word was going to go to all over the world. And we need a message that will apply to someone today in our nation, just like it will apply in North Korea. This is for all Christians. How do we live out sound doctrine in the world that we find ourselves in? So as we're going to see here in our passage, our conduct is going to be also modeled and inspired by what God has done for us. All right. So let's see what God's Word has for us today. Titus chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 1 as we look at our living out sound doctrine toward those outside the church. Page 998 if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul writes to his 
co-worker Titus, and by extension the churches that he was involved with, these words. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, just to clarify, I think Paul is writing to, this is meant to be for outsiders. He starts by talking about how we're to deal with uh, political leaders, and then he closes verse 2 by saying all people. So all of these, all this content isn't about, uh, this is about the outsiders. This isn't about how we deal with one another in specific, okay? This is how we deal with those who are on the outside. Now, to start, he says we are to submit to rulers and authorities. We're to submit to rulers and to authorities. Now, as I said a couple weeks ago, the whole idea of submission is something that's really misunderstood. It's really misunderstood. It doesn't mean that you are inferior. It doesn't mean that you can't voice your views. Rather, submission means a willingness to defer to someone who has a rightful place of leadership over you. Okay? has a rightful place of leadership over you. And so here, we are to submit to our political leaders because ultimately, we are submitting to who? God, who has placed them there. He has placed them there. And so as long as we are not required to disobey God's word, we should submit to our leaders. And Titus 3 is not the only place that says this. Romans chapter 13 It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 15 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So Paul and Peter are saying, look, submit to those who have been placed in authority over you and remind ourselves that these were emperors who regarded themselves as divine themselves who actually took the lives of Paul and Peter, yet they tell us to submit to them. That's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? Kind of puts a perspective on how we see our leadership, right? He also said we're to be ready for every good work. Again, he's talking about those outside the church, and he's echoing what Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. So in other words, yeah, okay, we might give preference to those who are inside the church, but we're to do good for everybody. We're to do good to everybody. And it says we're to speak evil of no one. Speak evil of no one. The Greek word there is blasphemeo. We can see where we get our word blaspheme, Right? And it was a word that was used to speak of someone denigrating or demeaning or maligning. You could use it to speak of someone addressing God that way. Hence, we talk about blasphemy, right? Or it could be used to speak of another person, humans. We're not to slander. We're not to revile non-Christians, including our leaders. Does that mean we never disagree with non-Christians? No, that's not what it's saying. It's not saying you don't disagree. 
It's right and necessary to stand for the truth. And I firmly believe that part of gospel declaration means gospel defense, right? And so you will have to defend the, way, the faith. And you will have to point out where others are going to disagree with you. Paul himself was arrested, wasn't he? For preaching the gospel. So he's not saying you go hide in a corner and you never share the gospel, you never stand up for what is right, you never share your views, you never speak. But what he's talking about is not speaking evil of others. You can do this. It's possible for Christians to be rock solid in their faith and not speak evil of others. But I think we've got some room to grow here, church. All the church. Not our church. I'm not singling out our church. I'm saying the church. I read things on the internet by professing Christians, even some that I have known over the years, that make me cringe. Not because of their defense of the faith, not because of their stance for the truth, not because of the passion of what they say, but because they attack people with such brutality. It's one thing to disagree with someone about what they're saying and to stand for the truth, but it's another thing to demean things like the way they look or their family or dredging up the past mistakes that their opponent has made over and over again or to wish them ill in the future. Ask yourself, does this line up with Titus 3? But this is what God calls us to live out, doesn't it? Similarly, we're to avoid quarreling and be gentle. Again, it doesn't mean we don't stand for the gospel. It doesn't mean we don't stand for the truth. But there's a difference between standing for truth and being quarrelsome, isn't there? Where we just want to pick a fight with everybody. We can do so and remain gentle. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. I don't think Jesus was one who backed away from anything, did he? But yet he was there to make peace. Or to finally, it says there, show perfect courtesy toward all people. The word courtesy uh, it refers to, quote, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. In other words, our lives should be characterized by humility. And we're to display this mindset toward whom? Other Christians? Man, I tell you, it's easy just to be perfectly courteous to you guys. We're on the same page. You guys are nice. Is that what he says? All people, whether they're Republican or Democrat, whether they're another religion or an atheist, Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Pretty powerful, isn't it? But what he's saying here is just echoing what Jesus said. Jesus said, Gentiles love each other. If, they, if they're in a bondage and they, they know each other, they love each other. But Jesus said, we're to love our enemies. Again, we don't have to agree with what they say or their practices. But we are to have big hearts toward those on the outside. We should support our leaders with our words and actions. 
Let me give you a stirring example. Between 250 and 270 A.D., a terrible plague decimated the Roman Empire. It's estimated that 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. I mean, people, people were literally just being left out on the streets. They couldn't even, it was just terrible what was going on there. During this time, interestingly, the Roman emperor Decius persecuted Christians and blamed Christians for the plague. But instead of turning against their neighbors, Christians loved them. Indeed, while many people were actually fleeing from these places, leaving behind those they knew, Christians, you know what they did? They stayed put. And they risked their lives to care for those who were sick and to give a proper burial to those who had died. We say, well, they cared for their own, right? They cared for the Christians. Yeah, they did. But you know who they also cared for? They cared for those who weren't Christians as well. And something powerful took place. A lot of Christians died in the process. But something even more significant took place. The gospel started spreading even faster. Because the outside world saw that this was a message that was so powerful and so compelling to see people who were being maligned by the culture love and serve them even to the point of death to live out Titus chapter 3. And when they saw this, they were compelled to put their faith in Jesus. That's Titus 3. Now Paul, moving on here, gives a reason for our conduct toward outsiders. He follows the same pattern as he did in chapter 2. Remember how, remember our little English grammar lesson, indicative imperative? He gives a bunch of imperatives, commands, and then he follows up by saying, this is the reason you're to live out these things, the indicative. Okay, he does the same thing here. This is how we're supposed to live. This is how we're supposed to live toward outsiders. But why? Why do we do this? Well, notice he says in verse 3 there, that little word, for. This is why we do what we do, why we live out these commands. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So you say, well, what's Paul's point? Why does he bring up our former life in Christ? And how does this relate to living out sound doctrine? Well, Paul simply is reminding the readers about the way they were before Christ. They were once the very things that they now see in the world, right? I think sometimes we need a memory refresher, don't we? That we didn't always just have it together in Christ, did we? We were a mess before Christ. We still might be a mess, but by God's grace, we're working some of those things out. But it says that we were once foolish. Now, that doesn't mean that you have a hard time, you know, balancing your checkbook or adding numbers or intellectually deficient. It's more of a moral, spiritual foolishness. It, it refers to one's condition before God. We were once foolish. We didn't think he existed. We live our lives without giving credence to God. We're foolish, right? We were disobedient to God, to his word. Now, as Christians, we know that we still break God's law, but hopefully by God's grace we're growing in holiness and living out what he calls us to do. But before then... You know, I know for me, we would just disobey God's word, and you didn't even have a sense of guilt about it. You know, you just kind of moved on with life. Your heart got hardened about it. That's how we used to be. 
We were led astray, led astray by the world, led astray by uh, satanic forces. We're slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were once hated by others and hating one another. That sounds strong, right? We're hating all the time? Yeah. We're a bunch of haters. We were. We should be at peace with all people now, but before Christ, if you recognize it, you were a hater. I look at my life when I was a Christian, when I was back in high school, I was one of those guys, I like to mix with different groups. But I always had somebody, you know, there was always just something going on in your life where you're mad at somebody about something, right? Angry at this person, angry at that, gossiping about that person. And if you don't think people in the world are haters, go ask them. Who are you mad at? Their boss. Listen to how they talk about their boss or their fellow employees, their neighbors that they've never talked to in 15 years because one time they didn't do the snow removal properly. Classmates, teachers, the other side of the political party, political spectrum, and so on. That's how the world lives, just always in a cycle of hatred towards somebody. It's a pretty tough picture of humanity, but it matches what the rest of Scripture says. Jeremiah 17.9 says, For the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, it was kind of a rough place there in Crete, like we've talked about. It's a pretty immoral place. But I think this is true as I look around the world, as I look at my life before Christ. It's true. The world is filled of this picture that we've seen here. Look at our history books, right? Look at the daily headlines. Look at what we see in the courthouses. Look at what we see in our own homes. And look at our hearts. This is how we once were. Is this ringing bells for people? So why does Paul bring that up? Well, we need to be reminded of how we once were. And then in that light, in verse 4 and following, we see amazingly what God did for us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He said a whole lot right there. Let's try to work through that. So he starts off by saying, when the goodness and loving kindness of Christ, our Savior, or God our Savior appeared. So he's saying, God intervened. What is he talking about? He's speaking about the incarnation, where Jesus came into the world. He lived this sinless life and died on the cross, as we're just about to remember. So all of that's kind of a summary of, he appeared. That's saying he saved us, right? He saved us. But here's the key question. Why did God save us? Right? Well, know what it was not because of why he saved us. He said it was not because of works done by us in righteousness. The human default answer is that we will go to heaven or that God will bring us peace because of what we do, right? Our good works. I have done countless evangelistic surveys or done door-to-door evangelism, and you would ask people the question, why 
should God let you into heaven? Or why would you go and have eternal life? And the standard answer, almost without exception, is because I have done good works. I have not done bad things. We're saved because of these different things. Well, Scripture differs. Do you read that plain and clear? It is not because of our righteousness. It's not because we pay our taxes, which you need to do by Saturday, right? It's not because you pay your taxes. It's not because you can hold down a job. It's not because you go to church on a semi-regular basis or a regular basis. It's not because you've gone through confirmation class. It's not because you've been baptized, as important as that is. It's no work of righteousness that we have done. Is that, just taking a pause, is that what you're depending on? To spend eternity with God, to be right with God, that you would say, well, the good kind of outweighs the bad. If you're leaning on that, that's not what Scripture teaches. We are not saved by those things. You say, why is that? Because those things don't remove our guilt before God. Those things are great. But they don't remove guilt. Just like a bank robber, he might have helped someone, an old lady across the street on the way to rob the bank. The good deed doesn't outweigh what he's done. Do you see that? He's guilty before God. He needs something to remove that guilt. And the good works don't do that. Rather, as he says there, we are saved according to what? The mercy of God. The mercy of God. Ephesians 2.8.9 echoes this. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's God's grace. It's not your works. It's not a mixture of works and grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. Now typically when Scripture focuses on the, the divine work of salvation, what He has accomplished in our lives, it focuses on Christ. And this is right. He's the centerpiece of salvation. But interestingly, we also need to remember that the entire Trinity was involved in our salvation. And here the focus turns to the Holy Spirit who we sang about quite a bit in our, in our uh, singing here this morning. Notice what it said there, that the Holy Spirit accomplished the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what does that mean? He's referring to the conversion experience, when the Holy Spirit regenerates a person. And the Greek word behind regenerate is really fascinating. Don't usually like to take time out for this, but this is really fascinating. The Greek word there is polygenesis. Polygenesis. It's a compound word. The word pollen meant another or again. The word genesis meant birth. You put the two words together and you get new birth. Born again. Regeneration. So at conversion, the Holy Spirit makes a person's spirit come alive. 
Now, of course, in one sense, their spirit is obviously alive, that it thinks, it, it feels things, and so on, but it is not alive to God. It's dead to God. I look at my life before Christ, and, and God just wasn't even on the radar screen. just wasn't there. Ephesians 2.1-2 says that prior to salvation you were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked. Friends, we must be made alive to God. Jesus says this just as clearly as He can. In John 3.3 3, He said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be made alive to God. You must be regenerated. And I want you to get two points away from this whole discussion about regeneration. One is that Regeneration is entirely a work of God. We can't regenerate ourselves just like you had no part in coming into this world, right? You, didn't, you have no consultation about your birth. You just come into this world. In the same way, God makes us alive spiritually. And then second, regeneration is a decisive change. It's, it's instantaneous. It's complete. It's not some kind of weird, strange, mystical thing where the, you don't even know if it happened or if it's a partial regeneration. No, you're made alive. You once were dead, and now you're alive. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about how he was, he was kind of thinking and wrestling about things, but he didn't believe in Christ yet. And he talked about how he got into a motorcycle with his buddy and went to the zoo. And they, and they had the motorcycle type thing where he would ride on the side. They had those kind of things back in those days in England. And he said, when I got into the motorcycle, I didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. But by the time I got to the zoo, I believed that he was the Son of God. He became alive. And he compares it to how like a, a person who's asleep and kind of waking up and how, boom, all of a sudden they realize they're awake. And that's what happens. The Holy Spirit makes someone awake, alive to God. Everything changes. There's a process in, in how everything kind of, cl the clouds clear up, but you just see things differently, don't you? The Bible becomes alive. You start seeing God everywhere. People become important to you instead of just kind of things you're getting over to get to your next place. Everything changes because you have been made alive to God. Let me ask you a question. Has that happened in your life? Have you become alive to God? Because that's the key question. This must take place. And if you're sitting there and thinking, I don't think so, or I don't know, then more than likely it hasn't taken place. You will know it. You may not know the exact hour and the day and all that stuff, but you will know whether or not you've become alive or not. And sometimes that's a great fear that I think we can have in the church is that there are people in the church week in and week out who come, and yet they don't know God. They're going through the motions for whatever reasons, maybe good reasons, noble reasons, but they've never been made alive to God. It's all about what the Holy Spirit brings in someone when He makes you alive to Him. Notice also, though, that He says that we're washed. Isn't that a great image? The washing of renewal. 
We're washed of our sins. But our consciences are clean. The, the, there's a sense of peace with God. We don't fear His judgment anymore. We have a sense of not being bogged down with guilt. We're new people and are washed. Just like you think of someone who's coming out of a hard day, hard day work and they're just covered in dirt and grime and the, and the water just comes and washes them clean. That's what it's like when you walk into the Christian experience. You come out of the world with all this filth and stuff on your life and in your heart and then you come into Christ and you're just washed clean. And you wouldn't give all the money in the world to change that, to have your peace and your conscience cleaned by God. Amazing, isn't it? Now, in verse 6, Paul mentions that the Holy Spirit was poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is another great truth. It's just how this was, this was predicted in the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 talks about how that the, the day would come when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. I'm not saying every single person will become a Christian, but the Spirit would be given to all types of people, like we've been reading here in Titus, the men and women, young, old, all types, rich, poor, they were all brought into the truth there. And it also predicts how, Jesus predicted how after, I mean, he's got this whole thing under control, guys. He says, look, he pulls aside the disciples the night before his crucifixion. He says, I'm going to go and be with the Father, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And boom, like clockwork, here, 40 days later, the Holy Spirit is given to the church, and he continues to be poured out upon the church so that people are made new in Christ. They go from dead to alive. Richly through the Holy Spirit. You say, why does he do that? Well, we've seen that we need to be made alive. But then in verse 7, notice it says, we're given another reason, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're justified by his grace. You will stand before God one day and be declared not guilty. And you'll be given the righteousness of Christ. So that no matter what you have done, what God will see is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not all the filth that you and I bring to the table. Justified by His grace. And then we're made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God said, look, this is what you're getting. You're going to get eternal life. You're going to inherit this. You don't have to worry about it. It's not based on your faithfulness, I'm going to be faithful to make sure that you inherit eternal life. Life that never ends. Life that is lived to the fullest, knowing God. This is what we inherit. And then in verse 8, he gives this summary statement. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul wants Titus to insist on these things because they're good. Profitable. Again, you see that emphasis on good works. So, bringing the wagon back, full circle. Going back to our original point, how we're supposed to live toward outsiders. If God showed this much loving kindness and goodness toward us when we were rebellious sinners, how much more should we show toward the outside world? when we were just like they, 
God's much different than we were. You get the point? God's much different than us, and yet He still loved us this much by sending His Son to die on the cross so that you and I might be forgiven. How much more should we look out into the world and say, you know, we were just like them, but God is so good. He gave us love and mercy and kindness. How much more should we trip over ourselves to show the world this kind of love and grace? Again, not agreeing with sin, not softening where we disagree, but showing the world that God has changed our lives by the love we show toward them. Do you see how it changes how you view the world? Pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, I'm going to call it quits for a day and pause right there because it's too late. We'll have to finish up the rest of Titus and come back on another day and finish that. But I wanted to leave the door open here. If there's anybody who wanted to share any comments or questions or things about uh, what we've spoken of here this morning, about living out sound doctrine, 